Hey there, friends. This is Pastor Tim. Before you hear today's message, I just want to apologize. We had some strange issues with the sound recording. There are a couple of spots where for 10, 15 seconds, the audio cuts out and then picks back up. Uh, at one point, I recorded the words that were missing over one longer section, but at enough points, there were just enough gaps that it became difficult. So I apologize for the imperfect recording this week, but I pray that you're still blessed by meditating on God's word with us. Exactly 500 years ago, yesterday, July 1st, 1523, uh, two young men, Johann Esch and Heinrich Vos, were burned at the stake in Brussels, Belgium, for the crime of teaching the Bible, just as I teach the Bible from the front here every Sunday. Heinrich and Johann were Roman Catholic monks who lived in Antwerp, and in 1522, the year prior, their bishop, the supervisor of the, the monasteries, the churches, the ministries in that area, had heard that they had begun teaching, preaching, in the same fashion that the German reformers had been teaching and preaching for some years. Uh, these were their convictions. Jesus died for all sin. Because of Jesus' death, God now no longer looks at our sin, no longer sees sin as an obstacle between us and him. God brings about that reconciliation which Jesus has provided for through the gospel message, the good news about Jesus. And that gospel message reconciles us to God when it's heard and it brings faith to life in our hearts. And lastly, their conviction that all of those things came from the words of Scripture, and that Scripture's words alone ought to be the basis on which Christian teachers, Christian preachers should teach, should preach. It was that last conviction in particular, what we call the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, Scripture alone, uh, that condemned Johann and Heinrich. Because the, the Catholic Church at the time, and I'd say still does, uh, added a number of things to Scripture outside of the words of Scripture, added a number of things to the faith, such things as the teaching that priests ought not marry, the teaching that not only Jesus, but Mary his mother, was born sinless, uh, the teaching of a place such as purgatory. None of these things are found in the words of the Bible. Johann, Heinrich, the reformers whom they were learning from, and Protestants still today, broadly, this is our conviction as well. Scripture alone is the, the basis on which the church preaches and teaches. I'm not going to go into a whole lot more detail on Johann and Heinrich's life because uh, their lives are actually told in this month's um, Forwarding Christ magazine. When you get a chance after the service, be sure to grab a copy there in the, the back um, the magazine rack there. Um, you can find them on page 10. I tell this story, those details that I gave you, just because it illustrates for us what it was that Jesus is talking about in our gospel reading when he says there in verse 21, brother will betray brother to death. What do they call one another in a monastery right, where Johann and Heinrich lived? Brothers. That's what Christians 
still today call one another brothers, sisters. It's what the scriptures tell us to call one another brothers and sisters. As Jesus sent out the 12 disciples there, he warned them that throughout their own ministries, throughout the ministry of the church which would follow them, they would see this take place. They would see that the gospel, Jesus' good news message, is exactly what we heard it is last week. It's a divisive sword. And we're continuing this Sunday after worship our study on this book, uh, 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible. Last week we talked about question number four in there. Who are you, Lord? Because that's a question that we find answered in the Bible. It's, as we talked about last week, the principal reason we go to the scriptures. We find out who God is in the scriptures. We find out who our creator is, who our savior is, who our comforter, redeemer, helper, sanctifier, our fortress, our shield. We find out who God is in his word. And I want to use that question. Who are you, Lord, to frame our consideration of today's message? And right away, who sends us out. He's not a God who commands that we do what Johann and Heinrich had thought for some time was the best Christian thing to do. Sort of lock yourself away from the world. Sit in a monastery. Right, remove yourself from daily life. Remove yourself from the temptations of the world and the flesh and the people of the world. Jesus sends his people out instead. The night before he died, what was his prayer to his father? Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. But I pray that you protect them, my followers, as they, as we live in the world. Our Lord sends us out into this world. He doesn't take us from this world. He sets us apart in this world, but we're sent out with all the gifts that God gives us, his gospel message and our time and our talents and our treasures. All these things are gifts given to us by God which he sends us out to share with the people he places in our lives. Our God is a sending out God. Our life is a sent out life. But God's promise is never that this sent out life is going to be easy. As we heard last week, his message that we go out sharing is going to divide. We will be hurt by people as we get involved in their lives. Sadly, we will fail to always be the messengers. Also listen to the words, the rest of this reading, the words with which he sends them out. We're going to ask this question, who is this Lord who sends us out? We'll go into the words with which Jesus sent out those disciples in verse 21. Again, we heard this briefly. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. On one level here, what you have is Jesus simply describing the sorry state of affairs that we so often see in our world. I find it really interesting that so many true crime documentaries, so many uh, podcasts, Netflix documentaries, find a fascination with right, like a murder in the family, something like that up. We're, we're, we're morbidly fascinated when 
well, there was a story just this last year in Queens where a mother drowned her kids off the beach. Those stories fascinate us. When you look at statistics, I don't quite see why we're so fascinated by them. You are far, far, far more likely to be murdered, assaulted, attacked by someone who knows you than by someone unknown to you. It's something that fascinates us, right? These cases. Wow, how could someone in a, how, how could a mother, how could a child, how could a brother, a sister, a cousin, an aunt? How could? Well, we may search to find an answer, but it's not that strange. Jesus isn't telling us anything here about the world that we don't already know just by looking at it. Parts. Uh, Jesus is speaking here in particular about the way that people will react to us as we share his gospel message. You will be hated by everyone because of me, he says in explanation of the previous verse there. A brother will betray his brother, he says, because of Jesus. Uh, a father, his child, because of Jesus. Why? Because Christians are such hateful people? Because we will deserve to be hated and rejected and scorned? No. As we talked about last week, the clear call of God all throughout Scripture is for his people to be kind, compassionate, gracious, gentle, patient, long-suffering, forgiving, humble. A, a parent ought never have a reason to hate their Christian child. Christian children are called to honor their father or mother. A, a Christian child ought never have a reason to hate, or a, a child ought never have a reason to hate their Christian parent because Christian parents are told, do not exasperate your children, instead to love them. A, a Christian brother should never be hated by his unbelieving brother for his Christianity, for the way it makes him act, because he's going to act toward his brother in a way that's gentle and kind and patient, loving and forgiving. What Jesus means to say here is that our, our actions, our behavior, our attitudes, the way that we act toward other people ought never be the reason that someone hates us. As the writer to the Hebrews tells the Christians, uh, Make every effort, in as much as it's possible with you, to live at peace with everyone. And there, the writer to the Hebrews is doing nothing more than repeating what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God. That's who we are as God's children. Peacemakers, gentle neighbors, considerate friends, long-suffering, patient, kind. So why will we be hated? What Jesus is telling us here is this. Make every effort, make every effort, make every effort not to be hated because of who you are, because of what your actions are like, because of the words that you use toward others, because of your attitude toward others. Let that not be the reason that someone feels scorn, hatred, derision toward you. Instead, Jesus says, if you're going to be hated, be hated because of me. Be hated because, despite being kind, a compassionate, a gracious, a gentle, a loving, forgiving person, you are stubborn about this, sharing this message. We are all sinners who need a Savior. Being that way, doing those two things, will get people's go. Sadly, we don't rejoice in that, but being someone who's, who's loving, who's 
kind, who's patient and gentle, who's meek and humble, and also shares this stark, exclusive message that Jesus shares with us, that will rub people the wrong way. When it does, you can honestly say, through no fault of my own, but for the sake of my Lord. Jesus says at the end of this verse, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Standing firm, what is he meaning there? Well, he means nothing more and nothing less than doing those two things. Loving your neighbor, standing firm in that, and clinging to the gospel. The good news that you have a Savior. Because what we want to remember through all this is that we need a Savior. We are not going to be everything that I laid out for you for the last two minutes. We are not always going to be perfectly gentle perfectly gracious, perfectly humble, meek. We will not always give people no reason to hate us, to feel scorn toward us. I don't want anyone ever to to reject me, Tim Walsh, because of who Tim Walsh is, and yet there are certainly going to be times, and I can look on my life and think, yeah, there have been times where I have said something to a friend, a a co-worker, a neighbor, in some vocation which I have, where I've offended that person for no good reason, without recourse to the gospel. That's why we cling to this message. That's why we love our neighbors and also cling to this gospel message, this exclusive message, this message that does divide because we know we need it. You, I, we all know we need this Savior. When Jesus says, stand firm to the end, he doesn't mean, again, to be some kind of, of ah, the Bible pictures, it's stubborn like a mule, right? He says, if you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. He is not saying, be it. How else does he talk about in scripture? Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't, don't be a jerk is a pretty decent way to describe most of Christian living. Don't be a jerk. Uh, If someone will reject you, Jesus says, move on. If they persecute you in one place, flee to another. It is not your standing there and resolutely making yourself the the arbiter of the... That's not standing firm. Jesus says, flee to another place is still standing firm. Stand firm is to love your neighbor and cling to the gospel message. Nothing more and nothing less. Jesus tells the disciples as they're doing that, as they're going out, that they're going to be persecuted in this place or that place, and that they'll have to flee to another place. He tells them that this message will be rejected as they go out. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he was preparing the disciples for a little bit of a, what we would maybe call a short-term mission trip in modern church parlance. Uh, After the discourse that we're reading from here in Matthew 10, Jesus sends the 12 out. We're not sure exactly how long, a few weeks, a couple months, But they're going out two by two, preaching, teaching. And Jesus himself kind of goes on a little bit of a solo tour, preaching and teaching. And eventually later they reunite. But Jesus tells them, before their mission has reached all the towns of Israel, he says, the Son of Man will come. That title for Jesus, as we're thinking about who is our God this morning, we can think about this title, who is the Son of Man? Well, it's another title for Jesus, obviously. It was a messianic title, comes from the book of Daniel, other places in scripture, uh, pointing ahead to this Messiah, this promised servant, this savior that God was going to send. 
more than that, it teaches us a number of things about who Jesus fundamentally is as well. We hear the title Son of God applied to him, and we think about the fact that he is indeed God from God, light from light, true God from true God, as we'll proclaim in the Nicene Creed this morning. The title Son of Man reminds us he's also truly a man, a human being, born of a woman, a guy who had teeth and fingers and skin and a birthday. The title Son of Man reminds us of that truth, of his incarnation, and it reminds us of the fact, the reason for his having become a man. Jesus became a man to die. The title Son of Man points us ahead to the cross. What Jesus is saying here is he tells the 12 disciples that their mission is not going to reach all of Israel's towns before the Son of Man comes. He's telling them that his death soon approaches. Jesus will be shown conclusively to be the Son of Man, a very man, because he will die. We ask this question, right? Who is our God? Who is the Son of Man? He's the one who died for me. He's the Savior that I need. Savior. And likewise, we will face rejection on the mission trip, which is our everyday Christian life. The same promise holds true. Our Savior's words here and throughout Scripture over and over are that he is coming soon. That the time we spend being rejected here pales in comparison to the eternity that we will spend at the side of the Son of Man, alive forever. We'll spend that eternity in his house. He describes it as being seated at the wedding banquet of, of Christ and his bride, the church. He's the master of the house. We are his honored guests. And that's where he goes next here. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Beelzebul. To throw this accusation of Satanism, of witchcraft at Jesus. They use this name carelessly, thoughtlessly. Christians are very careful instead about how the name Satan gets used. The book of Jude, the book of Second Peter, both warn us against tossing such words around lightly. Satan's name is not one that we reverence, that we give respect like we do Christ's name, and yet it is not one that we treat lightly. Peter writes that God's angels, when they bring judgment from God on Satan and his demons, they do not heap abuse on such beings, but bold and arrogant people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. Such were the Pharisees, tossing around Satan and Beelzebub as if these names meant nothing. Shall we not wear the scorn which the master of our house wears? Maybe this has happened to you. Right? The good name, the good reputation that your parents or your grandparents built up, you have applied to you also as people look at you. Conversely, if your parents or your grandparents built up something of a poor reputation, people might say, oh, there goes that good-for-nothing son. How bad is he going to be? So shall we be. Do we fear those who slander us? Christ says no. There's no reason to. Verse 28, he says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Here's a harrowing answer to our question. 
who is our Lord. He's the one he speaks of here. He's the one who can destroy were thoughtlessly, carelessly throwing that name Satan at Jesus, they had not even scratched the surface of who he was. Jesus was far more powerful than Satan as they throw that name at him. Satan is a prisoner in hell. Christ is the one who holds the keys. Christ is the one who condemned Satan and his angels to that eternal darkness. So why fear those who will blaspheme us and our Lord? They are powerless. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ, and in the end of things, every tongue will confess that truth, even those who will spend eternity apart from him, away from his table. I wouldn't say we take joy in the things I just said, but we do take comfort and confidence from them. We are not afraid to share this message, which is, Told us in the dark, which is whispered in our ears, as Jesus says. Interesting pictures that he uses there to describe what's happening here. As we gather around God's word. This is Jesus' message being shared, you might say, in a private way. Not that the church isn't in and hear the word. Since the time of the apostles, the church's meetings have always been open to those who want to come in and hear it. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, wrote to them about how should we think about worship for the thought of visitors who are going to come in and hear this message. But still, this isn't public in sort of the same way. 60 plus hours a week that you and I spend outside these walls where we have the opportunity to proclaim from the rooftops, to tell openly what it is we hear from our Savior whispered in our ears here. And Jesus ends this reading with another reason that we can do so. Verse 29, he says, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Here's one last answer to that question. Who is our God? The one who values you. The only one who will always, ever, value you. He delights in you. He cares about you. He protects you. He cares for you. He comforts you. He strengthens you. He provides you with everything you need. He gave his son over to death, the son of man. But he loves you. So don't fear this world as you're sent out into it. It's under Jesus' control. You're sent out with that good news. Know that your Father's hand remains over you each and every day. Amen. I invite you to stand and we'll continue with the